So an ecological civilization, what we mean is, you know, when we say that is we're talking about transforming society in a way that will promote the flourishing of life for the long-term well-being of people on the planet. That is definitely not something that we propose to be able to do on our own. It's a collaborative effort. You're listening to The Good Dirt Podcast. This is a place where we dig into the nitty-gritty of sustainable living through food, fashion, and lifestyle. And we're your hosts, Mary and Emma Kingsley, the mother and daughter founder team of Lady Farmer. We're sowing seeds of slow living through our community platform, events, and online marketplace. We started this podcast as a means to share the wealth of information and quality conversations that we're having in our world as we dream up and deliver ways for each of us to live into the new paradigm, one that is regenerative, balanced, and whole. We want to put the microphone in front of the voices that need to be heard the most right now. The farmers, the dreamers, the designers, and the doers. So come cultivate a better world with us. We're so glad you're here. Now, let's dig in. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Good Dirt Podcast on this midsummer day. And officially, we are at episode 101, which is ex- so exciting. Yay. Mom, what's going on with you? What's new in the garden? Well, the Rose of Sharon has bloomed. I love it so much. I have a whole bunch of it, and I just enjoy it so much during the second part of the summer. It makes such a beautiful cut flower. It lasts a long time in a vase. And it brings to mind for me the Sacred Harp hymn of the same name from the Sacred Harp Hymnal, number 254, if anyone's familiar with that. Yes, it definitely does, because every time you pass a Rose of Sharon or talk about Rose of Sharon, you start singing it. (laughs) So I can attest that it brings that to your mind. So um, do you want to tell people what is the Sacred Harp hymnal? Yeah. So Sacred Harp music is one of the oldest forms of American folk music, and it was developed in churches in New England a couple of hundred years ago, and it's been preserved in the rural South more in recent decades. It's also called sacred harp singing, fossa law singing, or shape note singing. And this is a four-part harmony, and people knew what pitch to sing by the shape of the note in the hymnal. So people who didn't read music could follow along and participate in the congregational singing. It's a beautiful, beautiful sound. Yes, I can say that I actually went to a sacred harp shape note singing. I'm not sure which one to call it. Gathering in New York City one time in the West Village. Ah, that was interesting. Oh, my gosh. And people sat in the four different positions and everybody in, mm-hmm. who sat together with the part you were singing. Yeah, and there was like, I mean, it really helps to have at least one person in each part that like knows what they're doing and then you have someone stand up and like lead it it was cool so the sacred harp hymnal is a shape note tune book and it dates all the way back to like 1844 i think it was published in somewhere in georgia and since then has been used for congregational singing in churches and i have a copy because i used to be in a sacred harp singing group when i lived in atlanta in the early 80s that was long before you were born yes (laughs) So if anyone's interested, especially in the Rose of Sharon song, which is, what did you say it is? Number 254? Yeah. So they refer to all the songs by the numbers, too. That's another Sacred Harp thing. We can have a link to it in the show notes. We'll link a a little clip of that hymn in there. If you have any Rose of Sharon around you, you can listen to it and look at your Rose of Sharon. It's fun. And get a taste of what the sound is. It's really beautiful. Yeah. And the text from this hymn, number 254, is taken from the Bible. It's actually taken from the Psalm of Solomon, which is interesting because the Song of Solomon is actually very erotic, but theologians over the years have argued that it's an allegory about love between Christ and the church or the love between God and man, etc. So, yeah, it's very interesting. (laughs) So yeah, now you can all go listen to the hymn and let us know what you think the meaning is. I also love that this kind of reminds me of the voicemail that we just got. Really? Yeah. Do you want to listen to it? Absolutely. Hi, this is Laura in Decatur, Georgia. 
I am calling to say thank you for your Good Dirt podcast and for the way you inspire us to enjoy and take care of the earth. I resonated with your conversation with Mr. McGowan recently on the magic and power of plants, especially when she said something like, treat a plant like your new friend or even a lover. I resonated because being friends with streams and trails and trees and wildflowers was just a natural part of how I grew up. My family spent a lot of time in nature, camping across the country in the summertime in the national park. Everywhere we went, my parents were intentional in giving thanks for the beautiful creation that God made. Just because I was lucky enough to land in western North Carolina, right when the rhododendrons were in bloom across the mountainside, I got to be face-to-face with their white and pink blossoms, and I enjoy happy communion with my friends. So thanks again. Yes, Laura. Oh, that was so beautiful and so meaningful, and I'm so glad that it resonated with you in that way. It does me too. Yes, and I just love the idea, too, of befriending plants, like we said, and like with the Rose of Sharon, being in love with them. Loving our plants. It's really sweet and really it elevates sort of the experience of our relationship with the natural world. So thank you for calling in and please continue calling us. And that was like a really sweet, beautiful story. But we promise y'all, if you just want to call in and tell us where you're listening from, that's all you have to do. Don't feel like you have to wax poetic, even though we love that too. Anything you want to say about the good dirt or otherwise, we're happy to hear from you. We hope you'll keep calling in. And again, you can continue to call in at 443-459-1950. Okay, so now that we've heard that wonderful voicemail, we have to announce our winner of our Slow Living Consult. If you're joining us for the first time, I want to explain that during the month of June, we collected all the voicemails that people sent. And we chose one for the Slow Living Consult. So a Slow Living Consult is a chat with us two, Mary and Emma, all about what you've got going on, how you're slow living, how you feel like you aren't slow living, and just all the things that we talk about here at the podcast, just sort of a little one-on-one chat with you. Now, Emma, I think you have an announcement. Yes. Star Haas from Alaska is the winner of our Slow Living Consult. Star, we can't wait to connect with you and hear more about what you have going on at the Haas Hope Homestead. We appreciate you so much, and we appreciate everyone calling in and telling us their thoughts and where they're calling from. You can still do that. We're keeping the voicemail open forever. 443-459-1950. All right, so on to today's episode where we get into some real nitty-gritty today with our guest, Andrew Schwartz. He is the co-founder and executive vice president of EcoCiv, which is short for the Institute for Ecological Civilization. Andrew is also the executive director of the Center for Process Studies and assistant professor of process and comparative theology at Claremont School of Theology in Southern California. His recent work involves the role of big ideas in the transition towards ecological civilization. So what is the Institute for Ecological Civilization? Well, as Andrew will tell us about, it is a nonprofit founded by Andrew and the co-founder Philip Clayton, promoting long-term solutions for the well-being of people and the planet. They work to connect, catalyze, and incubate. EcoCiv has undertaken ecological civilization-focused projects with a number of organizations around the world, and they're developing a robust methodology and approach that links global knowledge and resources to local leadership and capacity building. And so what, you might ask, is an ecological civilization? Well, that's the focus of this amazing conversation with Andrew. So sit back and get ready to take a deep dive into some very creative and forward-thinking ideas about what it means for humans to live sustainably on the planet. We're talking about fundamental shifts in many of our most basic assumptions about our relationship to each other in the environment and the role each of us plays in the way forward.
I'm Andrew Schwartz. I am the co-founder and vice president of EcoCiv, and I also am executive director of the Center for Process Studies and a professor of comparative theology and process studies at Claremont School of Theology, which is based in Southern California, although I've not too long ago moved to the green state of Oregon, okay. south of Portland, ah. in Salem, Oregon, and working at Willamette University. So I am interested in making the world a better place um, and doing what I can in order to facilitate that. So I like asking big questions. I, I like thinking about questioning the things that we assume mm -hmm. about the way the world works and the way that it should and the way that it could and see maybe if we can question some of our fundamental assumptions about how human life and communities are organized and then restructure those for the long-term well-being of people and the planet, which is something that our group calls an ecological civilization. So basically it's thinking about, so we say civilization in the sense of it's for us the biggest description of sort of how humans live. Um, so it's sort of trying to be all encompassing in that sense. And then to reframe how humans live from an ecological perspective for us means recognizing the interconnection and interdependence of things, the interplay of social and environmental. So yeah, that's what we do. That's awesome. We love that here on The Good Dirt. I think the questioning part is key, like questioning things we just assume, uh, assume like the way things are and the way things have to be. And I love uh, scratching the surface of that and digging deeper and say, what if things were not this way? And which is what I have found in your organization and your resources. And it's really fascinating stuff. And I think so important. So you are the co-founder of the Institution for Ecological Civilization, or ECOCIV, shortened. How did you get to that point? What was your aha moment or your moment of illumination where I could start something to where we're really digging in and talking about these things? Can you identify that or was it more of a gradual process? It's a great question. I appreciate your farming analogy, by the way, of digging in. Uh, that's good. <laughs> Uh, this is the Good Dirt Podcast. <laughs> Dirt Podcast, where we dig deep. Yes. So I actually started, as I had mentioned, as you picked up on, you know, I do work in theology and religion. And sometimes people are like, well, what in the world does that have to do with environmental stuff and ecology or even like addressing like, you know, economic injustices or something like that? Like, isn't theology just about like invisible gods and afterlifes and like the intangible stuff that sometimes people feel like is not relevant to like everyday practical concerns, which is a whole nother question, which we don't have to get into. Anyway, so. I would love to, but <laughs> yeah, we're in for that. <laughs> but for me, I actually, so I did start with, with an interest in religion. And the reason for that for me, as I was a kid, I actually grew up in a, primarily in a Christian home, but my father's Jewish. So I had sort of an interesting inter-religious kind of upbringing uh, where we basically, it didn't hit me as like that was important or significant or unique. Other than the fact that I got extra presents because we did more than we did some Jewish holidays and some Christian holidays. So I was like, hey, yeah, extra presents. This is great. <laughs> but when I was like a teenager, I said, well, you know, if I'm really going to be committed, you know, to this religious stuff and I'm going to be committed to God, I, I got to commit my whole self. Like, what would it mean for me to like go and be a. I don't know, an interior decorator from nine to five and then turn around and be a, a Christian only on Sundays or something. That's not giving God my whole life. So like my brain was thinking, you know, sort of an all or nothing paradigm where I said, if I'm going to commit myself, I got to commit my whole self. And that includes my career. So I started studying theology and religion with the eye of being a minister. Mm -hmm. um, and I did some work. I served in some churches and stuff. But the more I learned about theology in this process of trying to commit my life to the things that I thought mattered most and what could matter more than, than God, right? I thought, well, it's interesting how the things that I grew up learning were not the totality of the picture. There's a lot of diversity within Christianity, uh, which got me really interested in the sort of different ways of understanding and expressing Christian belief. And then that got me interested in diversity across religions outside of Christianity. So I became really interested in interreligious and comparative theology and something called religious pluralism um, that's sort of exploring uh, notions of truth and difference between religions um, and ended up doing a master's degree with that kind of a focus. But then that took me more and more toward like philosophy, which then got me thinking about these sort of big universal questions about truth and meaning and sort of life and definitions of you know, and structures and paradigms and how things are. Um, so 
<laughs> those sort of big universal questions that got me into philosophy, took me to Claremont, uh, where I was doing philosophy of religion and theology, and really deepened my understanding of something called process philosophy or process theology and started working at the Center for Process Studies. And that was an organization founded in 1973 by my friend and, and uh, mentor, John B. Cobb Jr., who's now 97 years old mm -hmm. um, and still going strong, and his former student and colleague, David Ray Griffin. And they founded this center basically as a faculty research center that was taking what, what we call a process relational worldview. So this idea that everything is interconnected and everything is sort of what's called like an organic philosophy. So it's like a philosophy of organism in the sense that the world's not understood as like a machine. That's sort of like, I don't know, like where you, you understand it by breaking it apart and examining individual pieces, but you understand the world as an interconnected web of life. So relationships matter, not just the individual components. So this is like a philosophy that I became increasingly interested in and had theological implications too. But the more I studied that, the more I became interested in eco understanding of the world around me and in environmental issues and the interdependence um, and dependence that we have on a living earth. So the Center for Process Studies has its roots, sort of an eco perspective. John Cobb was very involved in the sustainability movement in the late 60s, early 70s. So we have that history. So I come into this organization and learning all these cool things and being inspired by the people around me. And in 2015, we had this major conference called Seizing an Alternative Toward an Ecological Civilization about 2,000 people that we brought in over at Pomona College in Claremont, California, had 85 different working groups where people sort of select a track and say, we're going to get together in small groups and hash out like what these alternatives look like and rethinking farming, rethinking economics, rethinking education, etc. And out of that conference, there's so much energy and great ideas that John Cobb and I were like, well, we really, if we want to see this develop into sort of something that makes a difference and an impact in the world, we need an organization that can sort of spearhead that work and keep it going. So we recruited Philip Clayton to uh, head up that organization, and he recruited me to do it with him. And therein lies the birth of EcoCiv. Amazing. Yes. Oh my gosh, there's a lot of things in there, a lot of concepts, a lot of ideas. That was a much longer story than you probably bought. No. Well, you know, you didn't want all that. Yeah, <laughs> there it is. Oh, so helpful to have that background. I have one question I'm dying to ask. How many of those people that got together at that conference, those 2,000 people, I wonder how many of those people have read Daniel Quinn's work, Ishmael? Huh. Is that familiar? That's a good question. I'm not familiar. Oh, you're not. Oh my goodness. Well, I recommend I know, sharing my ignorance on the Good Dirt no, podcast. <laughs> it's not ignorance. It's it's a novel that really poses a lot of these questions that you all deal with in a fictional story. And I highly recommend that you read it when you get a chance. So, Andrew, the Institute for Ecological Civilization, it really deals with some really challenging concepts. I mean, you really have, you know, people have to go really to a different place in their head. So what do you see as the entry point? for the mainstream citizen, consumer, society member in grasping this idea of questioning our huge assumptions, huge assumptions like, you know, like our capitalistic system and the way we exploit nature to live the way we want to live. What's the entry point for the everyday guy, the guy on the elevator, let's say? I think there are some basic assumptions such as, is everything interconnected? Or is everything fragmented and individual? Mm. So I think Western society, we have so much of an emphasis on the individual um, and sort of individual autonomy, even our the notion of sovereign nations. Everything is sort of built around the idea of these are the boundaries, right? This is my identity, my space, mm -hmm. and distinguishing ourselves from other than and us versus them and all that sort of stuff. And I think what I learned from an environmental perspective is that these boundaries in real life are much fuzzier. Mm -hmm. It's not to say that we we get rid of the individual, but it's always understanding the individual in context as an individual in community. And in that case, one of the best starting points, I think, for these big questions is to recognize that everything is interconnected and everything depends on everything else. So humans can't thrive on a dying planet in that saving whales and saving the rainforest and addressing wealth gaps are not actually all separate things, but they're part of a complex web of interrelated problems. So then that means when we try to address these sort of what we might call wicked problems, 
these really big, really complex, sort of messy problems that are all interconnected, social and environmental problems, that we can't try to solve them piecemeal. So what EcoCiv does is says, we need to try to understand the complex web of social and environmental challenges so that we can find lasting solutions by addressing those root causes. And those root causes are things that we identify sort of underneath the sort of conditions that create the problems. So I think of the analogy of like a boat that's sinking because it has a hole and it's taking on water. It's completely rational to say, well, we got to get rid of the water. The water is a problem. It's making us sink. So you start bailing water, throwing it out. But if you don't stop the source of the problem by plugging the hole in the boat, you're going to waste all of your time sort of addressing the symptom. And it's not actually going to provide sort of the long term solution that you want. So that's what I think we need in society, sort of figuring out where is the hole in our civilizational boat and plugging that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm so curious. What do you think the holes are? What are the root problems? Let me tell you right now the uh, root cause of all of the problems in society. And tell us, Andrew. If you just if you implement these four ideas, you can save the world. (laughs) Obviously, it's it's complicated, and I think different contexts, things are a little different. What exactly the solution looks like in Bhutan might be different than what it looks like in Canada and different than it looks like in Brazil. I think that there are some fundamental assumptions about what we might call them in philosophy or something like anthropocentrism. It's like human-centeredness that are sort of driving a lot. Mm. If we understand the natural world, the more-than-human world is basically just there for with instrumental value, meaning that it's just there for yeah. for human desires and goals and it doesn't have any sort of value intrinsic to itself, then yeah. You know what's interesting? I just had this thought based on that. And then I want you to continue telling us all the root problems. But the anthropocentrism is an interesting one. And it reminds me of, I mean, there was a time in history when we literally thought the earth was the center of the universe. And after yeah. realizing that it's not, that changed everything. That changed so much. And so now it's kind of like we are in this I don't know. It's a much deeper and like more complicated thing to get out of. But we are in a time when we think of ourselves as the center of the universe. I mean, how can we not? We see the world through our own eyes. And so, of course, we are the center of our own experience. And so maybe that's sort of like part of the next evolution will be to understand that that we're not that. I don't know. I think that's great. I think and actually in history, right, the Copernican revolution yeah. Was not without problems because to yeah. propose that the earth was not the center and everything didn't revolve around the earth was raising the question on the centrality and importance of humanity. And mm-hmm. I think to question the centrality of, of human experience is sort of the most important or the starting point for understanding. To me, it's, an, it's not a question of are humans unique or are humans special? It's more a question of matters of degree rather than like sort of a difference in kind. So To say that humans have experiences and that humans have feelings is cool, but not to the exclusion of my dog Oliver or my dog Winston. They also have experiences and have feelings. They enjoy some toys better than others, and they enjoy sniffing some bushes more than others, and they make decisions and they do things. So yeah, I think there's something about not necessarily an anthropocentric, like an alternative to anthropocentrism that says, humans don't matter. Yeah. But a way to understand how humans fit within the sort of web of life that we are not separate from, but we're a part of nature. And I think that's a huge paradigm shift in what would it look like? Totally. How would we consume differently if that were our starting point? I think it's also a matter of being able to hold two opposing truths at the same time, which is something that we like our brains just like can't do right now. Expand on that a little bit, Emma. Like what would be the two things? So truism might be We are the center of our own experience because how could we not be? We experience things through ourselves. And then another truth would be we are not the center of the universe. I don't know, right? Like those are like opposing statements. And like what Andrew just said, Yeah, humans are super important and we have super important feelings and really different experiences. And also we're not that special. Well, Emma, I think you're onto something there. And actually it's a shift from sort of either or thinking. Right, to like a both and thinking. Yeah. And I think that actually is fundamental. And that's kind of outside our entire system of like science and, and as what humans, how humans have evolved up until this point, that either or thinking has really gotten us to where we are. Like, how can you run science experiments without either or thinking? Well, Andrew said, you, you know, are a theologian and you started out in theological as a student of theology. 
then you know, and you're very familiar with, and I'm sure you've thought a lot about the fact that, you know, in Genesis, it sort of sets the stage for this duality of humans versus creation, depending on how you read Genesis. I mean, I know there's different ways of reading it and there's different translations, but I think our culture, our civilization has proceeded on the assumption that humans are elevated above nature. And, you know, it's hard to say, oh, you know, you can't just say, oh, that's incorrect or that's a misinterpretation or what that almost doesn't matter. What it what matters is that that's that's the assumption that civilization has grown from. And how do we go back and reexamine that? How do you go back and say, wait a minute? You know, and I know there's different ways of reading Genesis, whether or not man has dominion over nature, which is a very different word from saying, what would the other word be? A responsibility to care for nature. Yes. Humans have responsibility over nature. And so there's this big assumption out there. Humans need to be more connected with nature. But even that statement sets us apart. And this is repeating an idea that you said just a moment ago. We need to really understand in a really deep way, in a really cellular way, our place in the web, our place within the creative system and the way the world works before we can really, I guess, kind of give up our modus operandus of using the created world, the natural world for our own constant support and growth and thriving. Yeah. The things you're saying have me going in a million directions in my mind. I've Even the word growth makes me think, oh, yeah, that's another problem, right? The assumption that we can have unlimited growth on a finite planet is a problematic assumption. I think theology, as you indicated, has a whole bunch of embedded assumptions that can play out in not just our religious lives, but also our political lives and our economic lives, our agriculture lives, right? So how do we understand power, for example? What does it look like to be powerful? What does it look like to be weak? If we understand God as the most powerful, then that, you know, how we understand God's relation to the world all of a sudden now has an impact on what we think power looks like in the world. Mm -hmm. If that means being able to affect everything else without being affected by it, and if that's what power looks like, then it's very one directional. It's very top down, hierarchical and authoritative. But that's not what we see in the natural world, right? Where things are much more symbiotic. They're much more give and receive, much more balanced. And there's an interplay of both and. So actually, I'm part of a group called Open and Relational Theology, or also part of Process Theology, which is proposing that perhaps that's not the right way to understand God as sort of the unilateral decider that is sort of sitting out there imposing upon the world, but never really being affected by the world. But that instead, the world, as we've come to understand it, is a complex web of interrelated moments. And that if the world is a web of interrelation, then perhaps God is the most interrelated. Mm. That God is not unaffected by the world, but is the most affected by the world. And in fact, maybe God's power is not just unilateral and coercive, but God's power is persuasive and cooperative. So if you understand God in different ways, what would that look like in changing the way that we understand our, our own role as beings with privilege and power in society? So I do think theology matters with respect to your question of Genesis and humanity. I think, you know, there's this special little idea that humans were created in the image of God. Mm -hmm. But again, what does that mean, right? What is God like? What is that image like? Does that mean that we have sort of unilateral authority over the earth? Or does it mean that we are in a position of moral responsibility for caring for the web of life for which we are also dependent upon. Mm -hmm. So I think the dominion theology, which sometimes is linked to sort of colonial expansion, Mm -hmm. is also being called into question by a a growing number of people who even the Vatican has an entire department devoted to creation care. And I think that's a whole new frame to say, okay, well, our role is not to dominate nature, but to care for nature, which is not separate from caring for ourselves because we too are dependent upon the health of a living earth. Yeah, we are nature. Right. Yes. And that idea of power is so interesting because as humans, we have exerted a lot of power and exploitation over nature. And, you know, we build dams, you build highways, you defy nature every day to sustain our way of life. But how many ways are we seeing now that these are coming back to bite us? And we're looking at these ways of being on the planet, like for, we're talking about for, you know, generations that are coming to tell us we're, it's not working. 
it's not working mm-hmm. anymore. And there's a finiteness to us living on the planet in this way. So power sort of gets turned around there. Yeah. What's the real power when our power over creation creates a situation where creation tells us we can't we can't live here anymore? Yeah, exactly. So that question of power relations actually gets smeared in a conversation that that my friend David Ray Griffin talks about with respect to deep ecology. So deep ecology is a movement that, I don't know if you've probably seen like those pyramids that have sort of humanity at the top and other sort of nature below it. Yeah. And then Mm -hmm. like, so that's like the ego perspective, but then you have a circle or something that humanity is in that sort of circle instead of the pyramid and it's the ego Mm -hmm. perspective. And that's kind of signifying of this deep ecology frame that wants to say humanity is sort of on an equal continuum with respect to value. Humans aren't more valuable or less valuable than the rest of nature. All life is valuable. Mm -hmm. And David Ray Griffin says, maybe, maybe not, but we maybe it would be helpful to distinguish types of value. So then he goes on this whole sort of And what he actually finds is that those creatures like humans that have sort of the greatest intensity of experience, right? We have arguably the the more cognitively aware and conscious we are and the greater degree of sort of our, I don't know, capacities for experience and understanding, the greater value we have in and for ourselves. But that doesn't mean that we have greater value for the ecosystem. So you get something like plankton, which is much lower on the intrinsic value scale, but much higher on the ecological value scale. And then Mm -hmm. humanity, which is maybe much higher on the intrinsic value scale, but much lower on the ecological value scale. Because without humanity, you know, the planet could thrive. Without plankton, the planet could not. It's just one of those things where it's so interesting, different kinds of value. And then if you sort of put it all together, then maybe there is more or less an equilibrium of, of values. So I don't know. Yeah. Going back to your imagery before about the web. And like, I love that. What if like God is the web? You know, like what? I, I just like, I'd never thought about that before. Like that's yeah the equilibrium between everything as opposed to being like this separate or like disconnected thing. Also, it's so true. Without humans, the planet would be rocking. <laughs> That's so but. interesting to me. <laughs> you just said that. I'm like, wow, yeah. The- yeah. And then and then plankton, what's a plankton? What's one plankton, right? But like, you're so right. Plankton are like super important. <laughs> Yeah, that's amazing to think about the fact that if humans vanished overnight, then the planet would still thrive. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about it on here before. Like, we don't need to save the Earth at this point. Like, we all know the Earth is going to be just fine without us. It's more, I think the problem at hand is like, are we concerned about ourselves? (laughs) Like, you know, because like really what we're killing is ourselves. Where does the Institute stand on that question? Like, are we fighting for the Earth's survival or are we fighting for human survival? I think we would say that's not two separate issues. Mm-hmm. And that at least what I'm fighting for is for hope. Uh, it's for a new kind of future, a future that, that it, where the, the world works for all, right? So it's the well-being of people and the planet. And that there's, so there's this question of whether or not we can actually do it, right? Yeah, um, yes. And the truth is, I don't know. I hope so. Are we going to meet our 2030 goals? It seems increasingly unlikely that we're going to meet our sustainable development goals. Does that mean we should stop trying? Absolutely not. Uh, Because Mm -hmm. the same kinds of structures and systems that we need now to help a transition toward a more sustainable and equitable world and an ecological civilization, it's the same kind of system and structure that we need to rebuild after collapse, if there were to be a collapse of civilization as we know it. So yeah, where do we stand on that? Are we saving humanity? Are we trying to minimize unnecessary suffering? Okay. I don't know. Yeah. And so correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that Ecosiv is basically founded on and operates as you've made space to ask the questions and to like sort of tease them out. Because if we're not even entertaining these ideas, then what are we doing, right? So that's really cool. Like, you know, a lot of times it it can feel really hopeless to be like, is anyone even thinking about this? But it's nice that they're like, are people thinking about them? And then so in the Institute, what are the kind of like, are there tangible action things that are happening from these conversations? And sort of what does that look like? Yeah, is it courses? Is it, what do you offer? So we've got a number of projects that are more in the, the sort of applied practice piece. And then we have a program that's more on the sort of theory side of things. 
And then, you know, the, it's really the, the theory informing the practice and then the practice providing data that reinforms a reevaluation of the theory and the sort of circular feedback loop process for us. So on the practical side, we've got, we're, we're working with the Wellbeing Economy Alliance, which uh, and, and have launched a, a California hub for well-being economies, are working with the city of Pomona on trying to develop worker-owned cooperatives and, and other sorts of things. But effectively, the well-being economy movement is about rethinking the economy from the lens of well-being as opposed to growth and profit primarily. So what's mm -hmm. the purpose of the economy? Is it to serve a wealthy few and the planet basically just serves to feed the economy? Or should the economy be serving the whole, including the well-being of the planet? So it's like sort of a, a, a shifting of the paradigm on what is an economy and how does it function and what are our goals? If our goals are to promote overall well-being as opposed to just increasing profits for a few, then we do things differently. Ownership yeah. looks different. Banking looks different. What we measure looks different. So maybe um, something like the, the Kingdom of Bhutan's Happiness Index uh, becomes a, a helpful measure as opposed to just measuring you know, gross domestic product or something like that. We also have a program working on uh, water partnership with W12 plus water for South Sudan, others where water scarcity becomes an issue. And it's been a major issue in, in places like Cape Town and others. So rather than just saying, okay, well, let's give people water because they're thirsty. Let's dig another well. Let's step back for a second is what EcoCiv wants to do and says, okay, well, what, what has led to water scarcity problems? How could we change the way that you know, we farm, how can we change the way that we give access to clean water to people? And so it involves, once you start doing that kind of work, uh, what we've noticed is that you quickly start working outside of uh, traditional sort of sectors or boundaries where it says, okay, this is not just a water issue. It's not just an agriculture issue. It's not just an education issue or an economic issue. It's sort of all of these things together. Yeah. But then how can you enter? How can you go from that place to then enter? Can you change a system from outside the system? Or is there then something that like our graduates of this program becoming consultants? How are you integrating these ideas into what's currently happening? Or does that not even work? Because do you change things from the outside in or the inside out? I, again, Back to that uh, question of either or or both and. Yeah. I, I hope that it's a both and. And that, that's my assumption is that that sort of big paradigm level, civilizational level change is not something that just happens from the top down or from the outside or from the inside, but it's also the bottom up. It's I mean, so it's, it's both and it's not just local. It's also global. Uh, but not yeah. the exclusion of each other. So we are working, we work with partners on the ground in a local context because we think that's vital. We need these ideas and these solutions to sort of take root, if you will, in a local context. And we need local sort of leadership to be the one that's really driving the boat. So I just use multiple different analogies. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think I get it, right? So, yeah. But if, but if it's just like individual people saying, well, I'm going to stop using single-use plastic, but we're not changing sort of bigger policies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Then we're also not, not, it's not enough. Right. So I think we need yeah. help. Yeah. We get into that on here sometimes talking about, yeah, we tell people, you know, don't use the plastic straws and don't wear micro plastic yoga pants and that sort of thing. And so people will change, you know, one or two behaviors. But the question is, and it bears asking, is this valuable if enough people take those small steps and are uh, become aware to that degree where they're actually changing behaviors? Is that enough? Or is it really going to take the bigger the policy changes at the top first? Maybe the behavior changes lead to policy changes. And I think from what you're saying, I'm hearing that I think it's actually both directions. <laughs> yeah. And I guess back to my original question. So the Institute for Ecological civilization is attached to a school, or is it as a school? No. So it is not. It is its okay. own independent thing. But where it's okay. confusing is that its president and vice president are both attached to a school. So, okay. so Philip Clayton and I are both professors with Claremont School of Theology. Mm -hmm. So we do have positions and, and connections with schools. I mean, I also have an affiliate status with Willamette University in their sustainability institute there. So I think we have connections in educational settings and we do some educational programs with our partner organization and things like that. We've just established, actually are just launching a new office in uh, Seoul through a partnership with Hanshan University. And so we're excited about that. But the institute itself, it's really working at the connection of, of sort of 
bringing together policy makers, government leaders, leaders in business, leaders in nonprofits and sort of community leaders together to basically collaborate on sort of these creative solutions that have this long-term vision um, that's trying to understand the interconnection of social environmental challenges, take this sort of systems approach to addressing these, these complex issues. Got it, got it. Okay, so it's like Aspen Institute or whatever. Why not? Sure. Yeah, it's like no, not a think tank. There's a think tank component to what we do, for sure. Okay. But we also are working on the ground to sort of test out those ideas with partners in, in local context so that it's, I think initially we played around with the idea of calling ourselves a think and action tank. Yeah, yeah cool. <laughs> because it's ideas themselves aren't enough to make a difference. Yeah. Right. You know, it's you need the theory to sort of guide the action. So it's not just aimless action. Yeah. But you need the action to ground the theory so it's not just, totally you know, impossible ideas that have no relevance. So it's that intersection of ideas and actions that we're trying to work at. And it's the people with the current definitions that we have of power, like the policymakers and such, that are learning within this institute and coming to these conferences. And so that's the education part. Or the, okay. So, and what is your main vehicle for bringing all these people together? Is it your conferences? I know you have your podcast. In what ways are you bringing these minds and voices together? Great question. Yeah. So probably two different answers. There's the before COVID answer and the after yeah. COVID answer. We've certainly been doing a lot more on, on Zoom and online the last couple of years, which has actually turned out to be a very cost-effective and carbon-effective solution anyways to communicate. We do have a, a podcast. We do uh, webinars and in, in uh, public dialogues. We also do sort of more closed door, like private convenings mm -hmm. and yes, conferences, but also sort of like more like workshop kind of things where we work with stakeholders on visioning exercises, sort of figure out, okay, where is it that we want to go as a community and then work backward from that to figure out the sort of path forward. In terms of your teaching and your students, where do you find your students in the midst of all of this? And I'm sure in your comparative theology teaching, you bring the the ideas of the institute into your classroom and yeah where do you find where do you find the people that are sitting there so our students i mean obviously they have they come from varying backgrounds uh -huh. varying experiences varying context most of them are interested in making a difference mm -hmm. not always clear on how to do that right so it's like i want a better world i want a more equitable sustainable world but what can i do to be a part of that so in our in our classwork, I mean, that's a lot of of what we do when when I teach courses on sort of ecological civilization is having students sort of come along for the journey on the reevaluating their sort of worldview part, uh, changing yeah. our, our modes of thinking, but then connecting that to application. So I, as I said, I'd been largely inspired by John Cobb, who himself was a, a theologian and philosopher at uh, Claremont School of Theology. He also wrote not just books on theology, but also co-authored books on economics with people like Herman Daly. He co-authored books on biology, Charles Birch. He was working on areas of psychology and education and physics. So he was stretching out saying, okay, theology is not just sort of a discipline that sits over there unto itself, but it's rethinking the most important issues of our day from your sort of faith perspective. And that's the kind of theology that he would do. And I think that's the kind of theology that a lot of Claremont School theology does, which is thinking of issues of justice and well-being and engagement, uh, not just the sort of issues of, of spirituality apart from the world in which we live. Yeah, I love the idea of bringing theology and interweaving it into just real world application and uh, like on the ground day to day decision making. I think in a lot of ways, our culture has separated theology from everyday life. Not, you know, you can't say that for everybody. And people have their own individual ways of viewing that. But I think as a culture, it's kind of separate. Yeah, I th I totally think it depends. I mean, I think in a lot of ways, that's probably also a good thing, right? I don't know. Yeah, it well. Depends on your theology. Right, there's so many. <laughs> um, I mean, I think the separation of church and state is an important thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I also think that disciplinization has strengths and weaknesses. So the idea in academia that, you know, you have a special focus, you know, physics. Yeah. I'm going to focus on physics, but I'm going to ignore biology. I'm going to ignore chemistry because those are not yeah. physics. There's benefits to that sort of precision that you get when you sort of focus on a discipline. But the problem is, is that the world is not fragmented in that way. 
Right. You know, if I throw a ball to somebody, it involves not just physics, but the makeup of the ball matters. It's density. It's how far away am I? Who's throwing the ball? You know, my body is not just biological. There's chemicals. So anyways, I think the point being is, again, this interconnection of things and overcoming the fragmentation of disciplines where theology is not just one among many disciplines, but part of that web of understanding. Yeah, the web. I think a <laughs> lot back to the web. I think along these lines, I love this question of if you are like at a social gathering and someone asks you what you do and you might say you're a teacher, but how would you describe EcoSave to a civilian, shall we say? And, you know, do you have an elevator speech about changing the, the way that we live on the planet? And what do people normally say to you? <laughs> or they walk away and go get a drink. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh, you've, you've been in that elevator. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I think for me, the elevator pitch is, you know, I mean, we have our mission statement, right? Something about, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, we work to promote the long-term well-being of people on the planet. And people, okay, well, great. <laughs> Not many people I know that are sort of against the well-being of people or the planet. Like, but again, it doesn't sort of answer like, okay, so what do you do? Right. Mm -hmm. You could say, well, we connect on a change agents and, you know, thought leaders and activists and policymakers and all that yeah. together in order to bring about change. Like, okay. So what, what exactly do you do? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think that that is like an ongoing sort of challenge because one of the things that we do is to try to connect the dots between often fragmented conversations. Okay. Yeah. But the challenge then is how do you talk about something without talking about everything if everything's interconnected? Uh, so it quickly get out of hand and overwhelming for people. I think I've been playing around with the idea of describing what we do as, uh, well, maybe a think and action tank yeah. that's working to connect the people around the world who are already working toward and calling for a fundamental paradigm shift in the way that human life is organized on this planet. So that involves mm -hmm. sort of in the spirit of systems theory, where you have like an iceberg and you think, okay, well, above the water is what you see of the iceberg, but that what we see are just the events around us, right? Species going extinct, temperatures arising and whatnot. Underneath the surface, you have things like patterns and trends, so sort of historical patterns of behavior and of results. Below that are sort of systems and structures, the very sort of the way that our society is organized and designed. And then at the very bottom of that, then you finally get to something like uh, mental modes or ways of thinking. And that I think most of what I would say EcoCiv is doing, obviously this is a very long elevator. Uh, it, <laughs> yeah, it's floors. <laughs> working at the sort of beneath the surface at, you know, addressing, uh, changing the way that we think, changing the way that uh, society is structured and organized. So alternative models for governance, for education, for economics and farming, et cetera, in order to change patterns and trends so that the events above the surface start to change as well. So I would say we work to address the root causes of complex global issues through collaboration with experts from around the world. That's good. That's a good line. You made all that up just now? That's you good. Keep that one. Let's let's post that one. Yes. Yeah. Okay. We'll clip that, and I'll send it to you so you can. Yeah. Keep practicing. Use it over and over. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> let's say the elevator did get jammed, and so I needed that. And the person is standing there next to you, and everybody's okay and calm because you know it's going to okay. go in a minute. So this person says, "Oh, that's interesting. Well, what do you do? What are your personal living practices or habits that, on a personal yeah. level make you feel aligned with the mission of this institute for ecological civilization and i'll add two to that it could be a stranger on an elevator who's just like happens to be really into it or like we get my mom and i personally like a lot of like good friends will just consider us kind of like oh what should you know what should i be doing about this or that and to me, especially if it's a good friend, I feel a little bit like, oh, I don't want to tell you what to do. But I'm sure you get those questions. And it's also, oh, wait, you, yeah. don't don't judge me for not being, yeah, uh, yes, uh, you know, yes, yeah. maybe I'm a little bit of a hypocrite, you know? I, yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> actually, the, the, the inevitability of hypocrisy is part of the problem because oh. that, and that's when I was saying, okay, so yes, we need to change individual action, but we also need to change the systems in which that individual action is taking place so that no, the true. possibility for action can be different. Mm -hmm. We can't really live today in a way that is not exploitative of nature if 
the only way that we have access to sort of the things that we need to live require exploiting nature because that's the overall system that we participate in. Yeah. Not to say, oh, it's not my problem, it's the system's problem, because I think that does get rid of sort of responsibility and there are things that we can do and choices we make. But again, that it has to be both. If somebody asked me about individual practices, mm -hmm. I would probably say something like, I don't eat my dog. Okay. <laughs> and you're like, wait, what? Okay, why would you? I don't know anybody who eats their dog. <laughs> That's because they don't have a dog anymore, Mary. Uh, I, I, <laughs> so years ago, I, I studied Jainism in India, which is like a very ancient religion that, that sort of is known for its stance on nonviolence. Mm -hmm. So you sometimes see pictures of these monks and nuns like wearing a mask over their mouth so they don't accidentally breathe in microorganisms and things in the air. Don't yeah. like, swallow bugs because those are life forms that need to be protected. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, sleeping the path in front of them so they don't ac accidentally step on these critters. And I think there is something about living and learning with them that sort of sparked in me a new sort of evaluation of how I relate to other life forms. And I remember coming home after being in India and looking at my dog and thinking, I love you, little guy. You're so sweet and furry and cute. You have, you know, such intelligence behind those eyes and whatever. I don't know. My my dog was is basically a, a little person because, you know, he's hand fed and he sleeps in the bed. And yeah, he's not a dog. He doesn't know he's a dog. Um, yeah, we get it. Yeah. Yeah, you get it. Anyways, so. It, it got me thinking about, yeah, sort of that anthropocentrism, sort of about my own values on my goal of trying to minimize harm and suffering. Mm -hmm. And um, I said, you know what? I'm going to stop eating meat uh, because that seemed like one step that I can make in trying to minimize harm. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to say that livestock is something that should be completely done away with in farming practices because I think there are benefits to livestock for the soil. Yeah. But from an ethical perspective, for me personally, just trying to think, how do I take seriously the fact that humanity are, is not the only kind of life that matters? Yeah. That mm -hmm. the life of other creatures matter too. And my dog is only one example of that. If I can extend mm -hmm. that sort of, I don't know, that value to my dog, why not extend it to a chicken or a cow or something else? So that's what I did. Yeah, I totally get it. Doesn't mean I haven't had pepperoni ever in the last couple of years. Like I, I, I maybe have. I know it, I, it's trying to minimize the amount of suffering that I am personally responsible for. That's all. Well, yeah, and like I do sometimes go to CVS and Target. Right. Uh, you know, I do right. like, but it's definitely like far less than I used to like shop at those places, and I don't. I'm not going to go there first. That's not going to be my first like knee jerk. I've mm -hmm. I've learned a lot kind of in all of the things that we talk about here and at Lady Farmer. I've learned a lot about like resourcefulness and like which is also tied to like frugalness and just figuring out what I can do with what I have first or what you know just like we were all so trained to anything that we want or need is a click away or whatever. So I generally have that and said, but no, I totally go buy things in plastic containers sometimes. <laughs> yeah. So I, again, but, I think imagine a world where you didn't even have that option. Yeah, totally. Right. I know. And some people really do live that way. And it is, it is life changing. Like you can decide, yeah. you can make that decision for yourself that that isn't an option. Mm -hmm. And my mom's much better at that. She doesn't mess around. Well, um, <laughs> again, I'm not perfect. And it's not, you know, it's not a perfect world to your very good point, Andrew. How can we, you know, prescribe how people are supposed to live in a system that doesn't give us any alternatives? Yeah. And we look for alternatives. We try to be creative. We try to skirt around things, you know. But usually those alternatives are going to exclude people. And that's not helpful either. Well, I mean, like, you know, how we always say, just try to work your way around the giant industry that's between you and your daily needs. Yeah. But a lot of it is an access issue. Like, Oh, exactly. And have access to even the information that like that's better for them or whatever right it's something that's, that is elusive it takes a lot of thought it takes a lot of creativity it takes it's a lot nuanced of, nuanced takes a lot of awareness education and certainly not a linear perfect thing mm -hmm. psychologically it's probably good not to beat ourselves up for there you go failing to live up to an impossible standard in an imperfect world absolutely so, yeah what is that helping yeah, but it doesn't mean that we can't try to to be better. I so I love the the idea that that Buckminster Fuller promotes the idea that we need to in order to change something, you need to build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. 
Mm. Yeah. So I think, does change happen from within the system or from outside the system? Does it happen from the bottom up or from the top down? Does it happen at the local level or at a global level? And I think maybe the answer to all of that is yes. But I also think that rather than simply rising up and, and articulating what we're against, is to be increasingly clear about what we're for. And to not only declare that what we hope for in the kind of world that we want to build, but also to begin to do that. And I think there are pockets and communities that are already working under alternative models that are showing that another way is possible. And that's actually super exciting to me. Um, that I think the more that people start doing that and say, listen, another way is possible, we're living it. Now we can scale this, we can replicate this, we can adapt it to a different context. The more and more that happens, I think the more and more the system will just sort of naturally change and new possibilities for each of us will emerge. Do you have any examples of, of that, what you just said? Probably some of the work that you all are doing. Mm -hmm. uh, some lady farmers. Yeah. That's a good example. Every single podcast guest probably. Yeah. This show. Yeah. Well, we, we do talk a lot about like the alternate ways of farming and the alternate sources of meat, the alternate way of dressing yourself, mm -hmm. alternate way of things you need to use in your house every day, you know. Little food movement, the slow clothing movement, all these things I think are movements that are examples of people saying another way is possible. Let's live into that. Yeah. Yes. And the sustainable farming, regenerative farming movement where we're, we're talking about the good work dirt and restoring the soil because mm -hmm. it's so fundamental to life on the planet. Speaking of the interdependence of uh, humans and nature, you know, soil and humans and the, the microbiome and in the soil as reflected in our bodies is it, it's a huge example of that, probably the most primary example of that and the place where that humanity will cease to be able to thrive if we really, really kill our soil. I have a question, the million dollar question. I don't know if you get these a lot, but we sure do. So what are the big corporations and the people and the movements and everything that that like is doing it right and who can we support because me in my experience I'm a mere consumer who I'm just learning about all these things and the pretty much the best way that I know how to engage is to engage with my dollar and to engage with these behaviors and patterns that I'm already familiar with but I want to redirect that energy so do you have an answer to that are there any corporations that are getting it right in any way or who do we throw our dollars at that's a uh... A really good question. I think, you know, you get people like, I mean, Patagonia gets patted on the back a lot for trying to put its mm -hmm. values where it's, it's money where its mouth is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, something like that. You know, and then you get groups like Amazon get completely ripped apart for the opposite. Yeah. I guess I would want to say, well, let's step back and even question the concept of these big corporations in the first place, mm -hmm. maybe prioritizing putting our dollars into to local initiatives, to local businesses, mm -hmm. to worker-owned cooperatives, places where more money is, is sort of being invested in a local community into a circular economy rather than money that's leaving a local community and being invested in large mm -hmm. corporations where more and more is, is going into the hands of a few people at the top of those businesses. I don't know. I think... That million dollar question is maybe problematic because it's a million dollar question. Yeah. It, it should be like a $10,000 question at a level. You know point. what I mean? Like a good point. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. But at the same time, I think with a million dollars, depending on how you look at it, million dollars could million do a lot dollars, more. And you would like to donate that to EcoCiv? <laughs> yeah. We would love to accept your money. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. Well, that's what I'm saying. Like, the, yeah. there are there are powers in the current system, the way that it exists, right. that the few people at the top, not, they're not all evil. And, like, there are really cool things happening. And with a lot of money comes a lot of power. And I think that the unfortunate thing is that I, I feel like a lot of them are just, like, do sometimes we'll just do things with that and we don't know, you know? And I think the B Corp kind mm -hmm. of yeah. movement is, is an attempt to try to identify corporations yeah. yes. that, could, that could be more trusting and, and prioritize those who are interested in a sort of divestment movement, sort of, mm -hmm. it's, it's not just divesting from fossil fuel investments, but it's also reinvesting in companies and, and practices that are more sustainable and regenerative. Sure. Planet. But I think for us, I publish books through Amazon. Yeah. I, I mean, we're doing a, an online podcast right now that would not be possible if it weren't for technology and yeah. for companies that are creating those technologies. So I'm not anti-business by any means. Mm -hmm. I'm not anti-technology or innovation by any means, but I am pro-life in the sense of mm -hmm. pro-well-being of both people mm -hmm. and the planet and the sort of flourishing of life in all of its forms. And mm -hmm. I think sometimes 
That means having to move away from a model that thrives in a, a globalized context and then restructure under a more localized context. So, for example, if farmers in India are primarily growing wheat and they're using that wheat and they're shipping it overseas in order to, you know, so they're basically, they're not growing food, but they're growing a product. Sure. A commodity. Yeah. You have, now you're, you're right. You're, you're right. You're growing a commodity rather than something that's edible. So now, I mean, you know, you're mm -hmm. feeding your family on what you're growing. So you get farmers who are starving to death, which makes no sense yeah. if you're supposed to be growing food. But that's the economic model for the agricultural system. I know, it's crazy. Government. And you don't even have to go all the way to India for that. Like, we're doing that in America. Right. You're welcome, right. everyone. Right. 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 Is there anything that, that you see in your students or... Yeah, what inspires you? Mm. What do you look at and think, wow, we're really making progress. We're going in the right direction. I get inspired by people. Mm -hmm. I get inspired every time I listen to somebody like Vandana Shiva talk. Uh, which is why I thought of India. I get inspired when I talk to people like uh, David Corton and Jeremy Lent, who just came out with a great new book, Jeremy Lent, on uh, the web of meaning. I get inspired when I listen to podcasts and to learn more about groups like yours, where people are... So I think what inspires me is that I, the more I learn, the more I feel like I'm not alone in my mm -hmm. conviction that mm -hmm. our current dominant systems and ways of thinking need an overhaul and that we need something radically different so that all people can thrive. Mm -hmm. There's, I think we're on the brink of something really exciting. Yeah. It seems like we're at the end of an age and the beginning of a new one. And what that new one will look like is not yet clear. We're at the end of the age of Aquarius. <laughs> well, it does seem like there is an eruption of these ideas and these discussions where I've been around a lot longer than you, but I can't imagine like 30 years ago having a discussion like this with anybody or even thinking these things. So yeah, it is hopeful. It is exciting. And we get really excited about it. And especially, you know, on this show, we have such a variety of people in so many different spaces, but all of it sort of boils down to the good dirt. <laughs> yeah, it's really crazy how that happens. In a funny way. Yeah. So you mentioned slow food and slow clothing and all that. And that sort of summed up into this thing called slow living. And Lady Farmer, talk, we talk a lot about slow living, can mean a lot of different things, but we're wondering what it means to you, and if you feel you are able to embrace the concept in your life. It's a concept that I, I fully appreciate and one that I struggle to implement. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> Whether it's talking fast or not taking time to smell the roses, so to speak. Uh -huh. So there's the great line that small is beautiful. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is something that's also sort of captured by this slow living movement that you're advocating. It's a good thing. <laughs> it seems right. It seems like it's the right direction, right? I mean, it's... Yeah. And why do you feel like you are unable to, yeah. or you just don't, or like, what, what do you feel like is the in between where are you chatting and where you are yeah we're workshopping now you know this is a <laughs> probably bad habits that i've just developed over a lifetime that i've not yet shed mm -hmm. so i think it's not that it's impossible to adopt mm -hmm. for me personally to adopt a, a a slow living frame i think it's mm -hmm. it's just a matter of doing it mm -hmm. we say slow living is just a matter of uh, being a, a conscious of how you spend your time and your resources. Yes. That's all it is, really. It's like, it's a consciousness is simply what it is and making a decision around this consciousness. I imagine you probably do a little bit more slow living than you're giving yourself credit for. <laughs> I mean, the fact that you have an institute for ecological civilization, yeah. I think that's pretty slow living. <laughs> well, in my book, certainly helping people evolve towards those ideas for sure. Yeah. So tell us, what does the good dirt mean to you? And that can be mm. literally or any way you would, and metaphorically, any way you would answer that. So many good ways to think about it, right? Yeah. Like, you know, when you think about getting the dirt on somebody, mm. you think you're getting the goods on them. Yeah. That's also getting the bad on them. <laughs> so it's like getting, you know, that dirt is a bad thing because it's like makes somebody unclean. Yeah. But then you think, oh, well, no, this is good dirt. Uh, <laughs> which is probably accurately described as soil yeah, because uh, it's, you know, healthy, you know, with full of life. But in a sense, I could see, I mean, I'd be curious on, on what you think, what all the different things you mean by good dirt. But I think there's something about a positive, hopeful sort of take on life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There are many different answers to that question as there are guests on this show. Yeah. Everybody. That will forever be true. <laughs> and we love it. So. Yeah. So is there anything else that you feel you would like the listeners to understand about the work that you're doing or anything else you feel like we didn't touch on? So the the language of ecological civilization, sometimes people hear that and it feels like we're proposing sort of a 
top-down, universal, colonizing kind of solution. That's one size fits all. And the truth is that it, it couldn't be further from that, right? What we're hoping for are very contextualized solutions, right? That ecological civilization looks different in different places around the world, but that we do that on a global scale. I think, yeah, I mean, if, if your neighbor's polluting the air um, and you're not, it's like, oh, well, you still breathe that air, right? Mm -hmm. um, so we can't think just in terms of, of the local to the exclusion of the global. I think we need to be thinking in terms of uh, transforming communities of communities that sort of happen locally, but then also are expanding to sort of like this web of life that keeps coming up. Yeah, wonderful. Yes. How about we have you tell people how they can engage more with the Institute for Ecological Civilization or where they can find you or like you mentioned some books you've written. Tell us all of those things. Yeah. So. An ecological civilization, what we mean is, you know, when we say that is we're talking about transforming society in a way that will promote the flourishing of life for the long-term well-being of people on the planet. That is definitely not something that we propose to be able to do on our own. It's a collaborative effort. So we actually are always looking for friends and partners and people to work with, voices that we can elevate, people that we can learn from and examples that people are, are leading already that are sort of living into that hope and that vision. So if you are such a person, and you want to reach out to us, please check us out at ecosiv.org and we'd love to connect with you. What about your books? Oh, yeah. Well, I wrote some books. I don't know. I mean, some are better. <laughs> okay, so one, one that's relevant, I guess, to this is uh, a book that my co-founder, Philip Clayton, and I co-authored together. It's called What is Ecological Civilization? Okay. It's really sort of a, a question-answer book um, that I think we had like seven or eight questions that sort of tried to get at the heart of what an introductory statement on on what in the world do we mean yeah. by ecological civilization. So that's not a bad place to start to get a sense of what we're up to. Of course, our, our website has other info. Um, there's a blog that we've got going and a bunch of videos on our YouTube account with interviews and, and webinars and, and special guests where we continuing to, to flesh out this this concept. And a podcast, right? And a podcast. Great. Ecosiv podcast. So all of that can be checked out on our website if you want to learn more. And there's always more in the works. Um, yeah. So be on the lookout for all the fun, exciting things that we've got going on, including the International Forum on Ecological Civilization um, that's coming up. It's aka the Claremont Eco Forum. So this is our 15th international forum that we're doing with our partners across from China and other places. It's scheduled for May 26th through 28th. It will be fully online and it's open to the public. Oh, wow. So if you're interested in learning more about ecological civilization and this year's theme is, is on communities, so rethinking rural life, urban life, and even digital communities for an ecological civilization, then uh, yeah, check Super it out. Super cool. Oh, interesting. I'm definitely going to check that out. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. It was so fun, and I'm so happy to be connected, and I can't wait. I feel like we could have so many more conversations. Yes. If we do. I hope we do. And Yes. It would be fun. Yeah. I appreciate the chance to talk with yeah. you. Yeah. Thank you, and we appreciate your time. So thank you so much. Bye. 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 Thank you for tuning in to the Good Dirt Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we hope you'll share it with a friend to spread the good dirt. This show is produced by Lady Farmer, a slow-living lifestyle community, and the original music is composed and performed by John Kingsley. For more from Lady Farmer, follow us on Instagram at WeAreLadyFarmer. That's WeAreLadyFarmer. Or join us online at www.ladyfarmer.com. We'll see you next time on the good dirt. Goodbye.